0: This week's parsha is Parshas Acharei Maes Kedashim. At the beginning of Acharei Meis, the psukim start by Yedaber Hashem O Mesha, Achare Maesh Nebne Aaron. Moshe Rabbeinu was spoken to by the Rabbi Nishleilim after the death of the two sons of Aaron, Bekar of Lufne Hashem Beyamusu, when they got too near Akrish Hu, and they died. And then the Psukim continue that Moshe Rabbeinu told Aaron the laws of Kahuna, and he says, "Al <laughs> Don't come whenever you want, Al <laughs> don't go whenever you want, and if you do, then you're going to die. So Rashi brings a mashal of Herbalazer ben Azariah to explain the Hakdama of the Parsha in that it says, We know already, that was a previous parasha. Why do you have to chazer over? So Rashi brings the mashal that somebody took sick, and he was visited by a doctor. In those days, they used to make house calls, doctors. Today, you don't have that anymore, but they used to make house calls. And the first doctor comes into the patient and says you can't eat any more of this type of food, it's not good for you, and you can't sleep on a certain type of bed, that's also not good for you, you have to take care of yourself. And then he walks out and he leaves, and the, the patient isn't really too impressed. And he goes back, of course, to doing whatever he used to do beforehand. A second doctor comes in to visit the patient and says, You're not supposed to eat certain foods. You're not supposed to sleep in certain types of beds. And if you do, you're going to die just like a certain person died in your situation with your medical condition. He had the same exact thing and he didn't listen to me and he died. Which do you think is going to make a bigger impression on the patient? Clearly, it's the second doctor. Because the second doctor didn't just tell him what he can do, what he can't do. But he actually painted a picture for him very clearly of what will happen. What will the results be if you don't listen to me? And this is what Rabbi Lazar bin Azari used to use to explain why HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Maisha Rabbeinu, Achere Aaron, tell Aaron, be very careful with whatever you do in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Mishkan, Al-Yaveh Why? Not just because it's a mitzvah in the Torah, but because if you do, you're going to die. And if you don't believe me, look at your own two sons. Your own two sons did something that was uncalled for in the Mishkan, and they died, and just like they died, you could die as well. By bringing home this point to to Aaron... This was something that really was able to be the most effective technique that HaKadosh could could Ketal Mesher in the art of giving musr. Don't just give musr in a way that's just very plain vanilla, you know, mutter, usser. Explain to people, build it up, show with graphic brilliance exactly what happens if you do it or if you don't do it. And this is, of course, a tool that the Bali Musrs say is so important for us to always use, the Kaya Chadimyan or the Kaya Hatzior, the ability to visualize things, the ability to not just learn something, but to actually see it clearly, to focus on it, to be able to see the entire beauty, the panorama of the halacha, of the Musr, of the message, if it's not Presented in a very lucid, clear, beautiful, graphic way, it will not do the same thing as just telling people right from wrong. Rabbitsa Isaac Sher, one of the Gdelia Musr, used to say from this pasuk, you see that Musr painted in a beautiful way is not just for the layman, it's not just for people that are, you know, simple folk. People that live, uh, you know, in the outlying uh, communities and farms and, you know, balagolas, they need to be given a picture in a, in a certain magnificence with entertainment, uh, with a joke, with a story, with a, with a moshel. That's for the hamayinam. But the Gedele Yisrael, they don't need those types of musr shmuz. And they, they're able to just get the musr straight from the Gemara, straight from the Torah, without any sugarcoating Dr. Bitzhak Isaac Sher, you see from this Rashi, that's just not so. Aaron Hakayin himself, who was spoken to by Moshe Rabbeinu, who was spoken to by the Rabbinic Sholeilam, they painted such a picture for Aaron Hakein, said so Aaron Hakayin would understand it with all, with all the nuances, with all the magnificent facets of the halacha, it had to be painted even for an Aaron Aaron lived only a few days ago with the death of his two sons. He surely remembered what happened to them. Aaron was the greatest goddo of Klaal Yisrael and he was told by his brother Meshur of the Rabin Shal Yisrael. What does he need this musr for? He needs to be told that Akhari Meshnei Bnei Aaron Zot share absolutely, every single human being, the way that our brains operate is that we need to see it. We need to understand it. We need to be presented in a way that's palatable, that's understandable for everybody. Aaron HaKain himself needed to hear from Mesha Abenu, who heard from the Rabbi Shalom, Ahre Meshach Aaron. A doctor comes to somebody, he has to say to that person clearly, this is what will happen to you if you don't listen to me. Everybody. Nobody is immune to needing musr delivered in a way that's clear and unmistakable. I always like to point out that whenever you see a vart from a gadol, like we just quoted this vart from a vitzig Isaac a lot of times, I think if you know a little about the background of the gadol, the vart becomes so much stronger. It's like Lamoshul and Pirkei Now Now's the time that we're supposed to be learning Pirkei between Pesach and Shavuos. And a lot of times, you find that there is uh, that the Mishnah on Avis quotes one of the Tanaim, and then it says, "Who hayah Aimer?" He used to say, "What does it mean?" "Who he used to say it?" "Say you know." Uh, I don't know, Shamay HaYaymer. Why does it say Shamay and then Hu HaYaymer? What's Hu HaYaymer? And the Mefarshim say so beautifully that Hu HaYaymer means that the Hu HaYaymer, if you understand who Shammai was, his homo hus said this vart. It's not like he just happened to say a nice moral lesson, you know, about uh, whatever it is, about being makabaladam upon panim yafis. It's who I am. This is the Vart that he lived by. If you understand who he was, who the Tanu was, then you understand that it was his entire who. His entire persona lived this. And this is true for all Divrei Taira. If you understand who says it, it gives a lot more dimension to the Vart. So let me tell you about who this Rebitzig Isaac was. And then I think will better understand how he understood this Rashi. Rebiz Isaac was the son-in-law of the Altif and Sabotka. Hashem, the entire world jury today lives because of this one man, the Altef and Sabotka. Every Gadol, Kemat, the entire yeshiva world today are direct-influenced are directly influenced from one man from a, from the Altif and Sabatko in his small base Madrash near Kavna he had a greenhouse in which he planted Kidala Yisrael. he took young men and he molded them into leaders Rav Shach, the Mirashivas, the Altif and Sabotka was the father of, uh, of the Mirashiva the Rav David Leibowitz from Chavitz Chaim, <laughs> Rav Hutner from Chaim Berlin, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky from Tarvadas, Rav Shach from Panovich, um, Rav Ruderman from Ner Yisrael, the Chevron, every Rashiva in the world basically came from this little base, a base medish, probably half the size of this base medish, if you can imagine that. And from this room emanated Gedalia Yisrael, each different but each immensely huge the greatest hamideh the greatest mashpiyim in Klal Yisrael. And the son-in-law of this altar Sabotka was Rebitzvah Isaac Sher. Rebitzvah Isaac Sher at one point in his life was not a Musernik. He was not somebody that was into Musr. There was a very big divide in Klal Yisrael um, whether Musr should be incorporated into the Daily starim of yeshiva or not. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter started a Muslim movement, and he felt that it was imperative not just to learn Gemara every day, but a yeshiva bachra has to spend time learning the classics, learning misol Sharim, shari share tshuva, chavis halvaves. And that's part of being a bentaira is to learn musr, and to really not just learn it and to know it, but to live it, to feel it, as Rabbi Yisrael Salanter used to say, musr behispaylos. You have to get a as You have to do it with, uh, with, with excitement and with enthusiasm and learn it like, like unbelievable. I often tell over the story that when I was in Aritz Yisrael, uh, I learned in Kaltira Taira and Bayit Vagan, and I had the unique schos, um, that one summer that I was there, um, my Rebbe said that down the block in Bayit Vagan, is Rav Gifter, Mardechay Gifter, is staying down the block. He was there for a chasna of a grandchild, and why he has you know, he's he's basically him and his Rebbitzin are in this house alone. He was learning, of course, but it's a good opportunity for you to get to meet him. So, myself and two friends went. We knocked on the door, and the Rebbitzin opened up the door, and she was so gracious, and she let us in, and then uh, Rav Gifter came out, the Talszer Ashishira from Cleveland. And he was American-born, and he was, you know, spoke a perfect English, beautiful English. And we were schmoozing. He gave us hours of his time. It was like the most incredible experience. He gave us, he told us to come back the next day. We came back two days in a row. Um, just as an aside, in the middle of one of these sessions that we had with him, um, there was a knock on the door. The Rebots had opened the door, and standing there was Rav Shach, And I was like, you know, for me, this was like Eden. You know, all of a sudden, Rav Shach comes into the room. They start hugging and kissing, and they're schmoozing a little bit. He left not so long after that. And Rav Gifter said to me, every time that I come to Eretz Yisrael, I tell Rav Blazer, I tell Rav Shach, you know, don't come to me. I'm going to come to Bnei Brak to you to visit. And he always beats me to the punch. He always comes and visits me, which is an amazing thing. Rav Shach was already in his mid-90s at the time. And he somehow got from Benei to Shalayim to Bayit Vagan to visit Rav Gifter. It, it's incredible, but one of the things that Rav Gifter told me when we were there was the Seder Hayiman in Telz in Lithuania, and he was describing the way you know Telz and Lito was the the uh, royalty of the Yeshiva world, Malchus Tells, they called it. It was it was a very uh, you know. It was a place that Tyra was learned with such intensity and such Kedusha on Tyra and the Rosh Hashivas were so so royal and so regal. And they were all, of course, you know, most of the community of Tels and Yeshiva was were murdered by the Nazis. Um, Rev Gifter hap- happened to escape in time together with um, Rev Bloch and uh and, and Ramatul Katz. And they founded the yeshiva in Cleveland, Ohio. But the yeshiva in Tels in Lithuania was an unbelievable makam taira. And the way they structured the seder ayam, they were so influenced by musr that they made the musr seder not at a certain time, like a given set time, but they would set it according to shkia. Whenever the sun was about to set, that's when musr seder began. And everybody grabbed their musr svarim. And they would start learning. They didn't learn, you know, three pages of Masol Tisharim or of Shari Chuba, They would learn one or two lines. This is the way Rabbi Shal designed it. Learn a little bit. Learn one or two sentences in Masol Sharam, hazard it over and over and over again. And scream it and sing it. And the sun was setting. And they didn't have electrical lights. They had to light, you know, candles and, and uh, you know, lanterns or whatever they were. And so it was pitch black at one point in the middle of the Musa Seder. But you already had the benefit of learning inside the safer for a while, and you memorized those lines. And then when it got dark, everybody felt uninhibited. Like they didn't have to, I'm not, you know, here if all of a sudden somebody starts screaming Musa, you look at him like, like he's Meshuggah. But if everything is dark, if the whole room is pitch black, then you could do whatever you want, and nobody's going to look at you Strange. So they were able to scream and to cry over and over, reading that same line by heart over and over again. And that was the Musser of Tells. And that's the way Musar was meant to be. Today it's a lost art. You know, They used to joke that today Musir said there is a half an hour or you know, 20 minutes of silence. That's basically what Musr said there is today. It's very hard to find a place that's really you know, into Musser. But Rabbi Siyah wanted it incorporated in every yeshiva and he was very successful because many of the great yeshivas throughout Europe uh, really adopted Musr. But there are many yeshivas that were against it and they felt that you can get all the Musa you want from Gemara. Anything that you need to change your Midas, you learn Gemara with, his, with, with, with Hasmada and with, with Amkus and with Lamdas and that'll take care of, that'll iron out all the creases in your neshama. It'll take care of any problems that you have but this was a very big debate. Even in Tells itself, there was a, a revolt because they felt that there shouldn't be Musr at one point. An, an entirely you know, different story that we won't go into right now, but it was a not, not a simple matter whether Musr should be incorporated officially into, into the shiva curriculum. Rebizal Isaac Sher happened to be of the opinion that it should not be incorporated. But he went to one shmooze one single solitary shmooze He happened to be by the altar. It was before he was a son-in-law. He just happened to go. Somebody and say, "Hey, go to the Altman Slavoz is giving a shmooze Go listen to it." Nah, it's Musr. I Don't go listen. And he went, and one single shmooze changed his life to the degree that he not only became a Musarnik, but he became such a Talmud of the Alter and Sabatko, who was a, who was, uh, a Talmud of Yisrael Solanter, who was infused with this spirit of Musar, he became his son-in-law. He took him as a son-in-law, and he eventually became the Rosh Hashiva of Sabatko. One shmuz could change a person's life. Now, what was this shmuz? We happen to know what the shmuz was. It wasn't a brilliant, long maracha. That's not the way the altar gave Shmuzi. He didn't give a whole like the Alishur, Shur, you know, with deep psychology and philosophy and Marom He took one Chazal. The Gemara says on a pasuk. The pasuk says, "Uleven shinayim Mechalov. and the Gemara darshins it in inksuvus, it's better somebody that shows the white of his teeth, meaning who smiles, to his friend, more than feeding him milk. What does that mean? It's a, it's a Gemara, you just go weiter, you know Whatever that means. Okay, sounds good, let's go weiter. So the altar took this little Gemara in Tzuvah's, and he built it up so beautifully. He painted such a with a kaya chadimian. He brought it to life. He breathed life into this chazal, so that it became animated. It became like three dimensional. And it was so impressive that it changed Isaac Sher's life. Well, what did he say? He says, "Let's let me give you a mushal to bring out this gemara to understand this gemara." He says, "Let's say there are two individuals." And they both want to do good for the people in their shul. So one person goes and he wakes up at five o'clock in the morning. He goes out to the field where the cows are and he milks the cows and his mom is schwitzing and he's, he's, he's milking them and milking them, milking them. And he gets a whole bucket full of milk and then he puts some ice cubes in the milk and he, uh, you know, he makes it nice and cold. And as the people are leaving shul to go out to work, to take the train, to go to Manhattan, to go, uh, to go do their plumbing work, to do their electrical, whatever they're doing. He gives each and every person, as they're walking out of Shul, a nice cold cup of milk. Or we can modernize it, a nice, uh, nice Dunkin' Donuts, uh, iced caramel latte. Every single person that comes out of Shul gets an iced caramel latte. But he just gives it to them. Here you go, here you go, here you go. And then there's another guy on the other side of the doorway and he's not giving anything out. He didn't wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. He died with everybody else. He did absolutely nothing extra. But he stands by the doorway on the other side of the Duncan guy and he says, good morning. And he gives every single person a big smile Good morning, good morning, good morning. Have a great day. You look great. I love your tie. Nice shave, good haircut. You know, you look like a million bucks. And he's giving everybody a smile. And everybody walks out feeling so good. They, so on one hand, they have a, a nice caramel latte. On the other hand, they have a smile. Who did more for the individual as, they, as the individual is leaving shul? Who did more? One person had to wake up early and go and money and resources and schwitz and schlepp. And the other guy did none of that. He just gave every single person a delicious smile. The Gemara says the author is telling us that the person that gave a smile, hamal you give somebody the white of your teeth, you show them a little interest, a little chizuk, a little smile, that you're valuable, you're chashub to me, I like you, you're enjoyable, you're delicious, you're geshmak. That person... Has given the individual walking out of shul much, much more than the other person that's giving him milk. The milk is wonderful. It gives you nutrition, makes you feel good inside. It's good. Milk is very healthy. But it's not nearly as healthy as a smile. When you give somebody a good morning, a hearty shalom aleichem, and a nice compliment, a nice smile, it validates the person. It makes the person feel I'm special. I'm important, I'm valuable, I'm relevant. When you ignore people and you don't give them the time of day and you just like walk right by them, it makes a person feel like I'm worthless. I don't, you know. So the guy that gave milk, he gave him a lot, but he didn't give a smile. That's not nearly as valuable as a person that just gives a simple smile, which costs absolutely nothing. But it means so much to an individual. When Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Sher heard this one vart that I just said, and I'm sure I didn't do it justice, but when he heard this vart, he was so shaken to his core, he was so moved, he never heard such a thing before. Muster was always like, you know, just like, don't do this and do that. But when you're able to take a vart, and you actually bring it home, it's not the doctor that just says, don't do this and don't do this, this is mutter, this is usr," and here's your prescription and go fill it. If a doctor says, listen buddy, you got to listen to me. This is your life. If you continue to smoke, you're going to die. I just had a patient here the other day that he didn't listen to me and he has emphysema. I just had a person that continued eating the way you're eating and it's not good yet. You get high blood pressure and heart conditions and it's not going to be good for you. I'm telling you. And you make it clear as day. And you become graphic. And you show him right from wrong in, in the most visual way possible. That is the way to deliver a message. The altar understood this. The altar lived this. This is the Kayach Hatsir, the Kayach Hadim, the way of imagining, using your words to paint a picture so that the listener is able to not just understand the halacha, and the, and the message, but to live it. And I think this is what inspired Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Sher to say his vart. He says, even an Aaron HaKayen needed to hear it this way. You could be an Aaron HaKayen, Rabbi Sher was a gadol. He was a tremendous hamachacham before he met the altar. But he needed to hear the is Tyra, in such a way, and once it was brought to light, he was changed forever. It was a much different experience than just hearing things just plain Manila. You have to build it up, you have to show it in a way that's clear and lucid, and that's the best way for any human being, even an Aranakayin, to understand something to its fullest depth. Milanu <laughs> Do we have a bigger gadol in the past 300 years than the Vilna Gain? The Vilna Gain is literally the Amud of Messiah that we have. Whenever anyone says, um, you know, they have a Messiah in Taira, in in Mitzvahs, in Yerushalayim, it all comes straight through the tree of the Vilna Gain. If you come to my sukkah on on Sukkot, I have a sukkah poster, and I think it's—I don't think anyone else in the world has it anymore. I bought it years ago, and I think it's out of print. And uh, somebody should really reprint it, but then mine wouldn't be that special anymore. It's basically—it has a picture of the Vilna Gain on top. Underneath it, a, a picture of the Vilozhner Yeshiva, which is his Talmud of Unfortunately, we don't have a picture of Chaim so they put a picture of his yeshiva there, which is still in existence today. By the way, you can go to Velazhen today, and the, the yeshiva building is still there. And from there, it shows how it branches out, the Volajim yeshiva, to all of the great yeshivas today. Just like I said before about the altar and Slabotka, the altar, everybody really comes from the Volnagayim, from Velazhen. Everything, the Nitziv, and, the, you know, it says on the bottom, it has all the yeshivas today, and, um, you know, it includes literally everything from, from uh, it's a very... Um, you know, non-discriminatory poster It wasn't put out in, in Lakewood. It wasn't put out in uh, in in Brak. It was put out by a company, Toro Lab. I don't know who that is, but uh, basically, they it's all inclusive, which is part of the beauty. So it has it has Chaim Berlin, and it has uh, you know Lakewood, and it has uh, Merkaz Harav, and it has uh, you know it has Rabbi Yosher It has everything in it, but it shows how every everything comes from Vilasen. All the Messiah that we have comes from religion, which comes from the Vilna Gain. The Vilna Gain was undisputably the God Hadar. He knew Kala kula He was just a mayanam Miskaber. He was the Miser. He, he had, he had everything. The Vilna Gain was basically, he was everything. He was everything that we have is the Vilna Gain. Now you, And the Vilna Gain was brilliant. Nobody could even understand him. He was, he was just light years away from everybody else. And yet, you would think, therefore, that he didn't need Musr. If there was a person in the world that doesn't need Musr, it's the Vilna Gain. The Vilna Gain was, was Kedosh Kadoshim. He was a Malach Hashem Tzavakiz. But yet we have a letter, and I brought it in my book, Great Jewish Letters, that, Riv, that the Vilna Gain writes a letter to the Dubna Magid. The Dubna Magid was, of course, the master Magid. There was no greater Magid more famous Magid, more more brilliant, creative Magid in the world than the Dubna Magid. He was the, the gold standard of Magidim. And he lived in the same kufa as the Vilna And the Vilna writes him a letter when he was very old already. And he says, "Yava Yedidi Lubesi, my dear friend, come to my house. He was summoning the Dubna Magid, to come from Dubna, I guess, to, to Vilna. And don't let your feet drag. Don't drag your feet. Don't delay your feet. Because I need you to come to me to restore my soul. And I need to occasionally have the pure joy of being in your presence, of hearing your mishalom. Of hearing your Musa, hearing your Torah. As soon as you get this letter, says the Vilna Gain, hurry up and travel to me, and don't delay. And we know, and then his son, the Vilna son, writes another letter under that, that my father really means it, he really needs you right now, come ASAP. And he came. The Dubna Magat came. He didn't stop off at all along the way. We know that he went straight from Dubna. If you get summoned by the by the Vilna Gun, you go. He didn't stop off at a 7-Eleven on the way to get a Slurpee. He didn't go to he didn't go to a Howard Johnson's to sleep at night. He went straight from point A to point B. He didn't even go to the local inn. When he got to Vilna to unpack his bags, he took his suitcases straight into the house of the gun. And he came into the Gain, and the Gain was so happy that the greatest bal Musr, the greatest Magid, came to him to deliver a personal Musr Shmuz. That's half of the story. You're probably wondering, well, what did he say to the Gain? How do you give Musr? Imagine if you were called uh, by Reb Chaim Kanievsky, you know, come to my house. He'd come to his house and give me Musr. I'm supposed to give Chaim Kanievsky Musr? Okay, you should learn a little better. You know, learn a little more. Like, um, you make two Siamasha Siaman Kalatara Kula every year. Like what, what can you tell Chaim Kanievsky? And a comma. what can a person say to the Vilmagain? I mean so the Velmagain asks the Dubna Magid, okay, you're here now, give me musr. Come on, just don't don't you know don't hold back, give it to me. And the Dubna Maga is saying, excuse me, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I could speak to laymen, I could go to, from shul to shul throughout the countryside and give fire and brimstone, but I, I can't give the Godla Dar Musa. So the Vomagain says, well, try, because I really need it. So the Dubna Maga thought for a second... And he said, "There's only one thing that I could criticize, Rabbeinu, about. But you have to give me rishas to speak, because otherwise I'm going to just be burned up. And you know, it's, you know, you can't give muslim to the guy and get away with it. You have to give me full permission. And I'm going to tell you something. And please take it the right way." The Vilna says, "Fire away. Go ahead." He says, "You know, the guy is living." In Vilna. If you know there was a shul in Vilna, the great synagogue of Vilna, you see pictures of it. You could find old pictures from before the war. It was destroyed right during the war, after the war. But uh, and right next to the shul in Vilna there was like a, a courtyard and to the to the right of the shul was like a little, they call it a clause, like a little house. And that was the basement of for the Vilna Gun. You take you you go up a lot of steps. We have pictures of that clays. The way it looked before the war, so we know exactly the way it was situated. They, it was all destroyed. It's interesting. They did an ar- archaeological dig. They're able to use very modern equipment today, and they're able to find exactly where the shul was, and like they could see underground where the urin was and where certain things were. Like they, they're thinking of like redoing it now, like sort of re, um, you know, building this original structure of the great synagogue. But the Vilna Gain was sat, sat in his clays in a little Beis Medrash where he had his, a few of his Talmidim learning in the outside room. And he had like a little, little inner sanctum that he sat and learned, Yaimam Balayla. And he said, you know, it's wonderful that the Gain is learning day and night, but do you know that there are people outside of the Beis Medrash that really could use the Hashpah of the Vilna Gain? If you would imagine you would go outside, just to the main shul and give Musa or, or give a shmuz, give a shear. So let people see your face. Let people see that there is such a person like the Vilna guy around. And maybe go to, a certain, to the communities and the outlying regions of Vilma. Get out a little bit. He says, even there's a Pasuk in Beresh, Ula yesh, chamishim tzadikim b'saycha ir. Avram Avinu, when he's pleading with the Rabba to save Sadaim, he says maybe there are 50 tzadikim Ha'ir. what does it mean, Ha'ir? In the middle of the city. A tzaddik does isn't a person that that cloisters himself in a little side small room and just sits and learns. A tzaddik really should be Bisay Khair. He should be in the middle of the city. Be mashpi on many people. And he says it's not a kunz. That was the Lushan of the Dubna Magad. It's not a kunz, it's not a big trick. To sit alone in a room and without, you know, you don't have the eight Go out and see if you, you know, try to try to you know go out a little bit, and then you're you're gonna really be a tzaddik if you can withstand the temptations of being outside and deal with people, deal with laymen, deal with balabatim, deal with shalom bayis issues, get into the into the thick of things. Then you'll really be a tzaddik. That will really serve you well and it'll serve Kalyisra well. This was the Musr that the Divna Maggid delivered to the Vilna Gain. And there are two Girsais of what happened. How did the Vilna Gain react? One Girsa, which I don't like so much, is the Girsa that says that in response to that Vart, that the dovna Maggid says about, it's not a quince, it's not a trick to sit here in the room. He says... The Rabbeinu Sholem is not looking for kunstmachers. He's not looking for tricks. I don't, have to, I don't have to pull off tricks. I just have to get through life, you know, I'm not looking to do tricks. I don't have to do tricks. I'm not a magician. I don't need tricks. But the other girsa which resonates more, is that the Vilna Gange just started to cry. He heard the vart, he heard the musr, it, it, it penetrated... And he just cried. And that's the power of a Magid. The power of a Magid is that he's able to deliver a message so clear, so powerfully, so to the point, hitting the target every time. The famous um, story about the Dubna Magid, who was asked, how is it that you're able to always paint such amazing mashalim? we have a few svarim that were written after the divnamagad was nifter they put together a collection of his greatest mashalim one book is translated by Feldheim and um, you could buy it in, a, in you know in, in svarim stores English translations of he has the most amazing beautiful mashalim that always mamish go right to the heart of the matter and they ask him how are you always able to come up with this perfect mashal so he says of course he answers well the mashal and he says, He says, Once upon a time, the king was walking and he sees that there was an archer who was standing with his bow and arrow and there was a whole wall and there were bullseyes, targets all painted on the wall. And in, in the middle of every single target, the center, there was like an arrow, but not just, not mamish right in the center of the, of the middle of the target. This is like the greatest archer that ever lived. This guy's unbelievable. So the king says, how are you able to be such a perfect archer? How are you able to mamish, you know, be machaving to get it right in the center of the of the t- every single time? I don't see any dots on the wall. I don't see any holes in the wall. It's all mamish in the center of all these ten targets on the wall. It's every single I want you to be my personal uh, ser- secret service man because you're perfect. So he says, no, no, I'll tell you my secret. He says, I'm not such a good archer. What happens is I shot 10 arrows randomly into a wall. Then I took out my paintbrush and I painted circles around each of those arrows. I'm not a great archer, but first I stuck the bullet in and then I painted around it. He says, That's what I do. He says, I'm not, I don't see a VART in the tyrant saying, hmm, how could I find a, you know, let me try to create a beautiful muscle.'" He says, The opposite. I go out to the world, I see stories, I observe things, and then once I observe things, I start working backwards, and I say, oh, this is such a great story, where can I plug this lesson into somewhere in the Torah? And that's why he has so many beautiful mashalim, but it doesn't start from the pasalim and end with a mashal. It started with a mashalim, and then it ended with a pasuk. The greatest of the Magidim in the last 150 years, who also was a master at painting such beautiful, beautiful Musur Shmuzen, was the Magid of Kalem. Kalem was a famous city. We know Kalem because of the Kalma Yeshiva, but there was a Magid of Kelam, and he was a master, a master Magid, with stories, with laughter, with crying, with people went crazy for his, mission. you have to understand, today, we're so oversaturated with entertainment, I mean, you know, whoever grew up as children with television and movies or whatever, so it doesn't really wow us so much, you're a good schmooz, okay, it's good, but like, you know, we're, we're used to being entertained in our eyes and our ears and our, you know, they have such multimedia senses for every single aver. it's like, you know, you have, uh, we're we were very spoiled. But in the olden days, they didn't have that. They didn't have any, any forms of entertainment. So the greatest entertainment was when a Magid, and especially a good Magid, would come to town. And that's how Magidim made their pernaf. So they would go from town to town, and they would um, put out a pushka, and if you, they would give a shmuz. And if you liked it, and you were inspired, you gave money. And they would go to the next town after that. So the greatest of all Magidim that would come to towns was the Magad of Calum. He was amazing. His oratorical skills and his theatrics and his, his sense of humor and his sense of timing was perfect. And they would have people, when he would come to a shul, it wasn't just the shul filled up, yeah, we filled up the shul. There were people whose noses were pressed against the windows outside just to catch a glimpse of him. And there are people on the rafters and in the Ezra's and on the walls and pinned. that every single centimeter of the shul was packed because they wanted to hear the, the vart of the Magid. They say he was so good at painting with his, with his words that once he came into a shul in Bialystok... Bialystok was in Irvambi, Yisrael. It was a huge city with many dozens of shuls. And every shul was for a different profession. So there was the, uh, a plumber shul, and then there was a doctor shul, and there was a lawyer shul, and there was a Schneider shul, which Schneider means a tailor in Yiddish. So, and it was basically tailors came to that shul and they davened together. So he came to that shul once, he was asked to speak, and it was maybe during the Yom Neiram, during Asayis HaMet and he said, he was describing how the Yom Dinah HaGadol is going to look, the great day of judgment is going to look for the people of Bialystok and the people that Davin in the Schneider And there's going to be a debate in Shemayim if they're zakai or they're Chayev guilty or, or not. Gehenim, And everybody was like, like enraptured by what he was saying. And he says that they're going to come up to the Din and the Baskel is going to come come out and say, tailors of Bialystok, arise for Din. And they say that in that shore while they were listening to this, all the tailors in that shore just stood up. They thought that they were already in Shamayim. They thought they were already transformed into another sphere. That's how powerful the Magad's words were. The most famous speech that the Magad of Kelam I think ever gave, and it's it's you find in a lot of Swaram, they bring this down, especially the Svaram on Yam He said like this. He gets up and he says that I don't know if you heard but the people in the local asylum in, in the local cemetery, they had Trias HaMesim for one half an hour. For a half an hour, everybody in that cemetery was able to get up, and at Trias and then in a half an hour they had to come back. And everybody was like starting to like get nervous and you know shaking and like asking questions and murmuring. He says, "And I know you're probably wondering." Why they didn't stop and visit? Why your parents, your brother, your sister, your children, why they didn't come and visit you? You know why they didn't? Because they were so obsessed with getting more schar. They understood what Elam Haba is. They understood the power of learning of Art of Tyra. They understood what it means to do chesed, tzedakah. And so they ran out of their kvarim and they ran to the base Medrash. And they ran to do chesed. And they ran here and they ran there. And then they quickly went back after half an hour to their graves. Because they understood what it really means, what life is, and what death is, and what schar is, and they understood they had to chaperayim a little more tire, a little more tefillah, a little bit more kedusha to go back and get more in Eilam Haba. And everybody was like, wow. And then he says, and let me ask you, Rabbi Sa." he says, so we have more than a half an hour to live. Should we be any less? Should we be any less excited to do Taira Mitzvahs, to hoard more, to go after more, to gather more, to learn more, to give more, to do more? We, our life is limited. We have to chaperayim. And then he let this sink in, and then he says, and who says that we even have a half an hour to live? That's the power of a Maggid. That's acharim may ibn b'nei harem. Acharim ibn you have to bring it home. It's not enough just to say to somebody, do tshuva. You have to say why to do tshuva. You have to make a case for tshuva. You have to show, you have to paint, you have to explore, you have to analyze, you have to breathe life into the topic. That's the art of being a Maggid, of being a Darshan, of being a Rav, of being a Rebbe, To not just say things in a boring way, in a monotone, boring, plain, vanilla type of... You have to give it over with a gashmak. You have to show how real it is, how true it is. It's not just nama locho. But you have to know this is what happened to your sons and this could happen to you if you're not careful. Bring it to life. That's the way it has the most impression, the most impact. The sad part is that even after you have a magad of Dubna, a magad of Kelum, an Altif and Sabotka, a Meshur Abenu, telling you Musr, it still is very easy to avoid. The message could be loud and clear, but if you're not motivated, you could walk out inspired you could tell everybody, "Wow, that was the greatest speech I ever heard in my life." I was just telling people uh, in a share that I gave on Wednesday night to alumni. Um, some, uh, we were talking about a certain community, and the Rav there, who in Englewood, New Jersey, the Rav. Now it's um, um, the the previous Rav who was nifter. Um, his name was Rabbi Swift. I don't know if anyone's from Englewood. But the old, it was probably before you were born. But he used to come out to Long Beach in the summer. And I never heard a speaker like him in my life. I heard a lot of good speakers. And I watch myself on terror anytime. But I never heard a speaker like him in my life. He came to Long Beach. And every summer, he spoke one Shabbos every summer. And he just... Held the shul under a spell, and these are baal that normally sleep through every joy. You start the rabbi gets up, they're already out. Like that's the spell, you know, like the the mentalist that comes here and like he knocks everybody out. Like that's how that's how normal rabbanim are. I think that's true in every shul in the world. But he like no one wanted to sleep, and he was like he like reached out to the crowd like he was touching every single person. I never saw such a thing in my life, but you know what. Regardless, you can come away and say he's the greatest speaker i ever heard, he's amazing, he's powerful, he's dramatic, but Gurnish doesn't help me. Why not? Because if a person doesn't want to hear something, it could be the most, but I'll find a way that it's not to me, it doesn't touch me, it's not relevant to me. I'll give you a great mashal, and this is straight from the Rashi. You go into a duty-free shop. You know, when you're coming back from Eretz Israel to America and you go into that, you know, the last uh, gate of, of Ben Gurion Airport that's going either to Newark or, to, or New York. But you have a whole, you have hours. If you get there early, you have hours and hours to kill. So there's a duty-free shop. So you go in and, you know, you buy some, uh, you know, some chocolates to bring home or some, uh, you know, makeup or perfume or whatever. But then there's like cigarettes, there's schnapps, and then there's cigarettes. And the cigarettes come in these big cartons, and it says in huge font, like you can't get a bigger font on your computer, smoking causes cancer. Smoking will kill you. Smoking will cause a baby to die. The unborn, whatever, they'll have pictures of diseased lungs on the package, and yet you see people, they're snatching up these cartons like they're going out of style. And they're opening up, they're smoking, and if for some reason they still have like a smoking room there in the airport, you know what I mean? Like a, a private, like it's a glass room, as if, it, as if like the smoke can't come out of that room. But you see like a cloud, or like a, you know, a cloud of smoke, and people are in there smoking, and they know that smoking kills. It says it on the, how are they doing this? Are they crazy? It says smoking causes cancer, smoking kills, and usually, you can't miss it. They have to put that on the package, the, 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 the tobacco companies. But people still smoke. They buy it, and they're smoking, and they're, they're, they're smoking, and they're smoking a day, as if it's candy, as if it's normal. What's the answer? The answer is that they believe that it kills. They're not denying the fact that it kills. They just don't believe that it's going to kill them. It kills. It kills him. It kills her. doesn't kill me. I'm different. And there's a story about a maggid that comes to town and he gives a, a shmuz and also one of these great Magidim and the whole town packs into the shul and he starts giving a sh- musr shmuz like crazy musr. And again, it was like Elul and he wanted to get everybody in the shul like to do tshuva. And he kept saying, everybody in this town is going to die someday. And people, the women, are like screaming from the Ezerosh Nashim. They're like fainting like flies, you know, like on call. And then he says, and every person in this town is going to give a din to malcham. with name the. Everybody's crying. Everybody's like going nuts. They're screaming. They're like crazy. But there's one guy in the shul who's just sitting there, like, you know, he's just like, fine, unfazed, unfazed. Everybody's screaming, crying. This guy is unfazed. He just sits there and like, You know, looking at his watch, you know, whatever. So now the maggid is like focused on that one guy. He doesn't care that there's hundreds of people that are doing tshuva. He has, his goal now is that he has to get this guy to have some reaction to what he's saying. And he gets loud. He says, everybody in this town is going to someday have to answer for every little of or that. And he's like, just looking at this guy, and the guy's like completely, he's just smiling, he's happy, he's oblivious. And like, you know, everybody's screaming, doing tshuva, like uh, ripping kriya, like doing crazy stuff. This guy is just sitting there like like nothing, nothing. So the magi like after that, he, he couldn't do anything. He finally just, I can't do this anymore. He just stops his, his he ends up, you know, uh, you know, and everybody comes running over. Yashkayah, amazing. He did such an amazing, putting money in his $100 bills in the push door. He, like, just makes a beeline. He, like, ignores everybody. He just makes a beeline straight for that guy. He, he grabs him by the lapel. He says, buddy. He says, I made every single person in this room, man, woman, and child, scream and cry and do tshuva shlema. He says, but you I wasn't able to get to. I need to know why you were so unfazed by what I said. He says, I'll tell you. He says, you kept saying... Everybody in this town is going to die. Everybody in this town is going to die. He says, I'm from out of town. I don't live here. You weren't talking to me. And so it didn't move me at all. And that's us. We're that guy. We're that guy. We always find a way to get around what the message is. The Musa is good. It's good. It's Kashmaka of muster, but it's for everybody else. You did a great job. Everybody else in the room needs it, except for me. I don't need it. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm going to go in my own happy way. But you're not talking to me. You're talking to him and him. You know, they say in my that Isser Zalman Meltzer was once in a shul where Arya Levine, the great Sadiq of Yerushalayim, gave, every week he gave a a Muser Shmuz. I think he gave on Pirkei Abbas, if I'm not mistaken, on, on one day a week. So Rabbi Levin was a tzaddik. Have you ever read the book "Tzaddik in Our Times"? Um, that was about Rabbi Levin. He was a person that visited the, the lepers in a hospital. Nobody wanted to go near them. He went to them and he gave them his life. And he gave the prisoners in the Israeli prisons all the time in the world. He made them feel great about themselves. And he was just a tzaddik. Everybody loved Rabbi Levin. The prime minister of Israel like, thought he was his best friend and the president of Israel. Half the book is just pictures of Israeli politicians hanging out with Rabbi Bin. They thought he was like, he was Rabbi like, Yasha's father-in-law and he was like, Kain Kanievsky, the Reb- Rebetzin Kanievsky's grandfather. and He was like, Mamish. he was unbelievable. But he gave a shmooz every, every week, Musa shmooz. And what happened was that a woman in the shul, whose husband, Davin, in that, sh- that particular shul, whose husband used to attend that, weekly shear Levin, she was being abused by her husband. Her husband was very abusive physically to her and emotionally to her, and he would say terrible things to her. So she basically went to Rebay Levin, you know, unbeknownst to her husband, of course, and she says, Listen, Rebbe, you know, my husband is 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 he abuses me, he's he's really terrible to me. Can you please talk, like just weave into your musa, whatever you're saying? Just weave in that you should be nice to your wife. You shouldn't be abusive to your wife. Can you just try to figure out a way to do that? Maybe it'll work because that because I'm at wit's end. I don't know what to do anymore. So he says, sure, no problem. So that 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 the next shir that he gave, he was speaking about this topic and he made a whole beautiful schmooze and he says you have to be nice to your wife and you have to uh, you know you can't abuse her and you know he was directing his words to that guy. And of course, that guy was just like sleeping or dozing off or whatever. But Rabbisar Zalman Meltzer, who happened to be at that shir, he was crying. And he was not just, i crying, he was bawling and he was like shaking. And afterwards, he says, Rabbaya, thank you so much for speaking to me. He says, I really needed that muscle. He says, I wasn't speaking to Rabbisar Zalman. I was speaking to somebody else in the shore. What, what do you have? This has nothing to do with you. You're the last person. He says, no, no, no I need it also. He says, sometimes. My Bela Hindo, that was the name of his rabbitson this is Alman's famous rabbitson in, in my book great Jewish classics I have a uh, um, a whole, on, on when I speak about the Swaram so the uh the Evan Ezel which is or this is safer it was uh, she's a very integral part of that safer because she encouraged him to put together his to to write it. She would write over the notes. she had a very neat handwriting, so she he would dictate to her. And she would write it over. She was also a very big mulumet. This I just saw this week in a different sefer that Rav Shach was speaking to a group of B'dayli Yisrael and they were speaking about a certain tesis and he, quote, Rav Shach quoted a pasuk and this rabbi B'la happened to pass by. She says, Rav Shach, he quoted the pasuk wrong. He said an extra word in the pasuk. He says, no, I didn't. Look, he pulled out the tesis. He showed her. He said, she said, well, pull out, pull out, forget the tesis. Pull out a pasuk. Pull out a And sure enough, she was right. Tesis... Was sort of misquoting the He was just like speaking out the vart of the plastic, but he wasn't quoting it verbatim. And all the gedolim had no idea, because we only know psukim from gemaras. You know, women actually know psukim from Tanakh. So, so he says sometimes when, when, when the rabbis when I'm giving over, when I'm dictating to her, you know, my chidushim and she's writing it over, Rabbi Zalman said that, I, uh, by the way, and in my safe I have a, a picture of Rabisir Zaman and his and If you want to see what she looks like, I have a very good, and I colorized it, so it's a, it's a very special picture of the two of them together. Um, not everybody was so happy that I did that, but that's a whole other schmooze. But um, the uh, no, they don't mind having women. They just don't feel that if there's a husband and wife together that that's appropriate. They felt that's like a personal thing. I don't agree, but okay. So he said that, that, uh, sometimes I, I, could, I could get a little upset with her if she messes up, if she misunderstands, if she ri- mis- writes it in the wrong way. Sometimes I, I, I flare up a little bit. And, uh, you know, Mrs. Amon's flare up, halabai, that should be our, you know, that, that should be our good You know, like, he's not, he's not flaring up, but on his level, he felt that he, Taka could make tikkunim. And he felt like that everything Avaya Lubin was saying about this real abuser was uh, applicable to him. That's the right way to hear Musr. The right way to hear Musr is not to right away deflect the Musr to the rest of the room and feel that I'm good, but deflect away from the whole room, meaning say everybody's kidishim. The Kulam said everybody's fine, the musr is to me. is to me. I think that's why Hakarish Hu says in the next Pasuk, Daber al Hakadosh says to Aaron, Aaron Achicha." Why is that today Achicha? <speaking in Hebrew> Achicha. We know Aaron. Which Aaron are we talking about? It's Aaron. Obviously, it's Aaron, your brother. We're talking about the mitzvah of Kain Gadol. There's only one Kain Gadol. There's only that one Aaron in the dar. That's the Kain Gadol. What does it mean, Aaron Achicha? Your brother. I think maybe this is the vart that Hakadosh Baruch Hu When you give Musar, make sure that Aaron understands that it's him I'm talking to. I'm not talking to another Aaron. You can't, you know, duck and, and, and hide from the Musar. It has to be Dabril, Aaron Achicha. It's to you I'm saying it. And you have to be Makabalit. Musar has to be a direct... You can speak to a room of a thousand people. The maggot is supposed to understand that I'm speaking to a thousand people and every one of those thousand people have to understand that the Shmuz is to me. That's the only way that this is going to work. It's dabro, aaron, achicha. Has to be directly to the right address. The shmuz has to land on the doorstep of each and every person. This is the art of public speaking. This is the art of a darshner, of a magid, of a gadol, of a rav, of a rebbe, of a chavrusa. You have to say things in a way that's articulate, that's personal, that's exciting, that's animated, and that finds its mark. If you're getting up and you're giving a Muser Shmuz and it's not Negea, then don't give it. If you're not able to bring it home properly, then don't give it. If it's not going to be properly understood or properly received, then don't give it. You know, Irv Destler used to say that it takes him about, I think he said, maybe 18 hours to formulate one schmooze that was maybe an hour long. What took 18 hours? A desler was brilliant. or desler needed three seconds probably to write a schmooze. But it was the way you craft it, the way you say it, the way you don't say it. What you should leave out is important. The words, the metaphors, the, the mashallim. There's so much that goes into a, a schmooze, into a drasha, into a speech. And... This is, I think, the Makar. Our parsha is the Makar. Achre, mais, shneb ne'ar, nakarishbach, who's telling everybody that's in the business of giving over Taira, musr, Taichacha, ava, it has to be done dramatically, it has to be done graphically, it has to be done beautifully, and that's the proper way to give musr, that's the proper way to give over the Taira's Hashem. In Hashem, we should all be zeicha to have opportunities to give over Tairus Hashem to other people, because it's not just for us. Like the Dubna Maget told the Vilna Gain, it has to be b'saycha ir. You have to be chamishim tzadikim b'saycha You have to go out, you have to give Tair, whether it's in the summer, whether it's on yam Taivim, Ben Azmanim, after you graduate. You have to volunteer giving shirim. You have to make your, whatever you're doing, whether you're a or a Balabas, whatever it is. Give over to other people, but do it carefully. Do it properly. And in Hashem, you will always hit the mark. Have a good time.